This is a compelling image. It's a young child, and her attention is fully focused on a magazine on her lap. Her body fills the frame as she sits in comfort on a sofa, perhaps, as if in a nest. The drapes or wall covering behind her, that is composed of a row of 20 or so vertical stripes, and that reinforces that her energy is directed to what she is reading. And her look is intent as her arm lies on the pages, indicating she's reading what she's beholding, not just turning pages. The print is by the artist Doc's Thrash, made in the late 30s, and it's titled Life. Because of the size and format of the magazine, we realize that it is no doubt Life magazine. But we realize the title is so much larger that the child is studying life in the largest sense by engaging with the world at large in her reading. We have words from Carmen Vendelin, curator of art at the museum at LaSalle University, explaining that Doc's Thrash depicted African-American subjects in an era when many worried that being labeled an African-American artist rather than just an artist would marginalize their work Langston Hughes, Alan Locke, and Marcus Garvey called for race-conscious art, and Thrash was among the artists who embraced their thinking. Here, in this print, Thrash depicts a little girl absorbed in the act of reading Life magazine. According to Vendelin, the choice of Life magazine emphasizes the girl's identity as an American. Art historian Richard Powell asserts that the non-racial genre image soft-sells the idea of commonality and unity rather than separation in the African-American experience of childhood. Vendelin goes on, between 1930 and 1947, African-American illiteracy rates stood at between 11 and 18 percent compared with 2 to 4 percent for European-Americans. Thrash left school after fourth grade, which was not uncommon for an African-American growing up in rural Georgia in the early 20th century. Thrash was an autodidact who studied by correspondence while living on the road as a teenager before attending the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. The act of reading was no doubt intended to communicate a positive affirmation of the child's literacy, intelligence, and cultural savvy words of Carmen Vendelin, curator of art at the LaSalle University Art Museum at the time. This print, Life by Doc's Thrash, is such an appropriate image for the conversation we are about to hear. The theme of education in the largest sense, education in the service of the most humane values, is at the root of this remarkable story. First, we will be speaking with two educators who will talk with us about one of the country's major collections of African-American art, dedicated in large measure to an educational mission, and about works that are here in our area. Works in the Misericordia University exhibition for the benefit of the students and the wider community. And there on campus, in honor of the memory of a graduate of Misericordia, because of the love and generosity of his aunt, Mrs. Harriet O'Banion Kelly, a retired teacher 
who with her husband, Dr. Harmon Kelly, have personally selected each drawing, print, and painting in their collection for its ability to share African-American history and creativity with others. We'll also learn about artists who were educators, about those who studied with masters and mentors to learn their techniques and find their voices. Dr. Lelaine Little is director of the Paulie Friedman Art Gallery and adjunct professor at Misericordia University in Dallas, Pennsylvania, just outside Wilkes-Barre, and she has worked closely with Harriet Kelly to bring 40 pieces of the collection to the gallery where we can view them through April 10th. Dr. Little and I had a chance to speak by phone with Mrs. Kelly at her home in San Antonio, Texas to learn more. It is my pleasure to introduce our audiences to Mrs. Harriet Kelly. She and her husband Harmon collected this wonderful array of African-American artists from the early 20th century until the present. And when they started, they, they collected works uh, really with the mind for their daughters. But it is such a pleasure to have this exhibition on campus. We have 40 works from their extensive, extensive collection, which covers, it sounds like, their entire house. And we think that we picked really the, the best stories out of the bunch. And I'll let her tell you a little bit more about that. Harry, it's wonderful to have you with us. And the story, you could tell it in your sleep, no doubt, story about how you and your husband were at a museum one day. And the rest is history. Yes, we were at the San Antonio Museum of Art in an exhibit that David Driscoll had curated. is called Hidden Heritage. And it was an um, exhibit of just all African-American artists which we never had been exposed to. So we were just really uh, excited and thrilled to learn about this and because we just hadn't been exposed to seeing such major works by African-American artists. So we set out to try to find some of these artists, and we did do that. That was sort of how we got collected. But I saw a need. Some museums were not able to have the large canvases and I thought of something that would be easier to transport, and that's why I organized this Works on Paper exhibition. I started out initially here in San Antonio doing presentations, exhibits for banks and USAA that's here. And then it grew. It got so I could no longer manage it myself, so that's when I reached out to Landau Traveling Exhibitions. So the pieces in this group are as early as the 1800s through, uh, you know, the 2006 and later. So it's a very extensive shows about great migration of blacks leaving the Algerian South to go to the North, industrial North, and just shows, tells the story of the whole African-American experience. And as you know, um, Erica, I always advise people to start small when they're starting a collection. And Mr. Kelly is a physician and Mrs. Kelly is a retired teacher. And they were really thinking about how to create a legacy for their daughters and really teaching themselves African-American art history because this was not widely available at the time. No, it wasn't. Couldn't go to museums and see these works initially among their collections. So it was sort of the beginning of showing African-American art in, in museums and other institutions. So that's pretty much how we started out in hopes that other groups do the same, and we wanted to familiarize our daughters with this type of work. 
you tell another wonderful story about having a hard time finding somebody to work with you to help you get connected with this art, but you found somebody. Where was the art? Was it in collections? Was it in attics? Well, probably all the ones that you mentioned, actually, <laughs> yeah. Well, Thurlow Tibbs was the person that, after we had seen the Hidden Heritage in the San Antonio Museum of Art, we had just built this house, and we thought it'd be great to have works by African-American artists. So Thurlow literally led us by the hand and was our personal curator and advisor. And as we gained more confidence, then we were able to venture on our own. But you couldn't go to your computer and look at these works online. You know, there weren't any images you could do like that. So most of the way we did it was by seeing advertisements in newspapers and word of mouth. Certain other people knew we were collecting, and they made great use of Polaroid uh, pictures that were sent to you, which weren't very good. And unfortunately, I missed out on a lot of great buys because I couldn't really appreciate the image that was sent. So that pretty much tells the story. You know, we, we had to become librarians, creating a very useful collection about African-American artists and all the catalogs that we could get that were done on African-American artists. This is what we did. We studied and went to more exhibitions as they were being created in museums. So we just became good students of African-American art. So that pretty much tells the story of how we, we got started. And Harriet, when you and I talked, that Harriet had mentioned Dr. David Driscoll, who was so instrumental in bringing to bear African-American artists and the history of African-American artists. And when Harriet and I were, were working on trying to figure out how to shrink their collection down so that it would fit in our space, we looked at one I insisted on bringing all of the women artists to Misericordia, making sure we included all of them, and then really thinking about the variety visually. And Harriet, if you wouldn't mind talking about what moves you visually, what kinds of themes and what kinds of techniques were you looking for in this collection? Well, we were interested in portraying African-Americans in the best positive way. So we did a lot of, chose a lot of family prints that showed the family together as a unit, husband and wife and children, and uh, then also African-Americans at work. This, you know, the trade has been lazy and shiftless. So that was another theme that we chose. And then portraiture, just pictures of African-Americans that looked very prominent, and sort of those those themes. We have a couple I, of student-teacher relationships in the gallery. Harry, did I tell you that I called Lionel Lofton in Houston? Oh, no. I did. We have his work, yeah. Yes, so he has a work family. called Embracing. That's a family. It's a mother and, and two, two older children, and then she has one in her arms. And I, I called him to ask him about what made him do that theme, and he said that When he was at TSU studying with Dr. Biggers, the emphasis of the program was to do families and in the style of Dr. Biggers, which is that very angular kind of pen pen work. And now he does he does abstractions. He does these really beautiful, colorful abstractions that look like layers of tissue paper on top of each other. And he's represented out in California now, but he's really excited to be part of this show. Well, that's great. I'm happy to know that. Yeah, a lot of early artists who started out figurative went to abstraction, and 
other collections, maybe not necessarily in this collection, I try to have examples of all types. Some were started out doing prints and then all on canvases and then some even sculptures. And there's some wonderful images of musicians or dancing. Ezra Couture, yeah, the dancers, yes. Mr. Couture was a very important African-American artist who just passed away shy of his 100th birthday. And he spent a lot of time in the um, islands, Haiti, and other um, areas, the islands off South Carolina, Gula Islands, studying the African-American women in particular. So that was pretty much his whole theme was the African-American woman. So we're very proud to have several works, but this with the dancers was very impressive. And it's always a pleasure to be able to have interaction with the artists, and certainly we're happy that we were able to uh, have many conversations and meet with Mr. Couture in his apartment in New York. You got to meet a lot of the artists that are in this exhibition on campus. We knew John Biggers. We never met Bob Blackburn. I wish we had, mm-hmm. but he was a great artist. And um, Margaret Burroughs, mm-hmm. able to meet her. I think youth is in the collection, certainly Elizabeth Catlett. So these were great treasures to be able to meet them and interact with them. Lane, tell us about a couple of the women images that jump out for you. Well, of course, there's the great Elizabeth Catlett. She has a very famous image called the Sharecropper, and it's a woodcut. Uh, it's very just beautiful lines that extend all the way up her neck and then surround her head in this straw hat. Now, Elizabeth Catlett was the granddaughter of, of slaves, but her parents were educators, and she practiced in the United States, and then she actually ended up moving to Mexico to and studying with the Mexican muralists, as well as uh, in, when she was in the state, she studied with Grant Wood, who we showed last semester. So there's this legacy of American artists teaching other American artists and, and then having these very important artists travel to other parts of the country and even the world to learn their craft and to perfect their craft. So we think about things like the Harlem Renaissance, and I think most people understand that that there was a big African-American art movement in Harlem, but we have artists that represent Cleveland, the Carnival House in Cleveland. We have artists in, of course, Texas, John Biggers, and in California. So it's a a wide-ranging group of artists. Yes. Again, very happy to interact with Elizabeth Catlett talk to her, uh, among other artists. And the sharecropper is a very important one. There actually were many examples of this print. The one here is the earliest one, which has no color in it. It's done in 1952. And this was an artist proof. And uh, it shows African, a strong African-American woman who you can tell she's aged by hair being gray. And just her face shows that her concern about welfare and other things is very prominent. And just the clothing she wears, you know, it's just something that looks like a safety pin that's holding it all together there, but just very important and very popular print. She did a lot of prints and things, but especially when her children were smaller because she couldn't do the sculptures and other things because she had to be at home with her children, so she did. It's interesting to see how the artist did certain works at certain periods of time. And her U.S. citizenship was taken away from her. So that's another reason why she spent so much time in in Mexico. 
Yeah, she was not only an important artist, but an activist as well. And um, those activities got her banned from returning from the United States. And so all of our artists have something to say, not only about their personal life, but in advancing the, the movement and the cause of African-Americans. And we've, we think that's just an, such an important legacy to share with our students. And Harriet, I think that you are very much like Margaret Burroughs in that Margaret Burroughs had also set out to give black children a sense of pride in their culture. And she was going around the neighborhood asking for people to donate things to the museum. And they had their museum in the first floor of their house in Chicago. So you yeah. might be a little bit of a Margaret Burroughs as well. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, and then the William Smiths, I think those were in the collection of the works you chose. Payday shows, one shows the young boy jubilant because he's working. And another one shows the dismal standing on the light post because he didn't have work. So those are the types of things we try to have people at work and play, having fun, not seeming so dismal. Now, our cover image, we use the William Henry Johnston for our cover image. Oh, yes. Well, I so much appreciate that. And William H. Johnson was an artist that, because of the racial climate here, he became an expatriate and spent a lot of time in uh, Denmark and actually married a lady there. And then when he developed mental illness, well, his wife had passed away and her family sent him back to this country and he spent, I think, the last 20 years of his life in a hospital for the insane, Mm -hmm. not able to work or anything. And his work after his death had to be rescued because it was about to be taken out of storage because the rental hadn't been paid, so... We are very fortunate to have, actually, we have three of his, they call them pushwars. And a pushwar is a a stenciled print. Yes. And others, we know we have etchings in here. We have all types of woodcuts. So it's sort of a story of the different ways that these artists made their works, how they were pulled, and did them very inexpensively, like the linoleum prints, just a piece of linoleum that was cut out and then printed. And then I think you have a Doc's Thrash. We do have a Doc's Thrash. Uh Uh-huh, another good example of a great printmaker, probably known for his printmaking more than anything else. Yes, for those who don't know, the Doc's Thrash forwarded an experimental kind of print that has a lot of depth in it. It's, it's It's all monochrome, but the process that he used allows for a real sense of depth. And so it's a little girl with a book on her lap and and there's variations in tone from her face to her hands. It's really extraordinary. Yeah, well, he, he actually is given credit for this type of printmaking. Yeah. And for those of us in Pennsylvania, he spent right. much of his time in Philadelphia. Yes. He became one of my favorite printmakers, and I have quite a few of his different works, which, um, again, is so rewarding for having these works, knowing what difficulties they had in selling them and not being appreciated. He was one of the ones that uh, I got mostly from gallery owners in in Philadelphia. For those of you who aren't familiar with print, we think of print as being able to be easily reproduced, but in these processes, they're done so collaboratively and in such an experimental mode that sometimes you will pull a print, or in other words, lift the paper off of the block and maybe not do another one exactly like it. So in many ways, these are, are unique works. Yeah, and Blackburn was a great printmaker. And all these artists during this period, the Harlem Renaissance, if it hadn't been for the uh, WPA, that now would have happened because that furnished teachers that were able to teach them the, the processes. 
Yes, the, the Works Progress Administration funded schools, they funded teachers, they funded artists to do public works, and that's yeah, how we have the Yeah, the Roosevelt with. Administration, yes. So we're very happy to have many during the WPA period. Just think about it, we haven't even mentioned Jacob Lawrence. Well, he just is incredible, and some people, I remember my husband was saying that museums should already have a Jacob Lawrence in the in the collections to say that they just got one. It's, you know, it should have been there already. I agree. He's so great, and we've had a personal relationship with him. There was an exhibit here in San Antonio, and we had a luncheon for him and then a reception for him. So he and his wife were so, so generous and so kind, but he's just an incredible person, and just what he achieved with having so little. That's why he did so many works on paper, because couldn't afford the materials to do all on canvases. But we're so fortunate, you know, we have some uh, major pieces by him. And then also I have acquired the uh, Toussaint Overture prints, yes. the 15 prints, which was a challenge because early on when he decided to go back and recreate some of the 15 prints, they were offered with pre-publication, so I bought about half of them. And then last few years wanted the whole set, so I was able to, with my family's help, to acquire all of them. And some museums, the Amarillo Museum in Texas, had an exhibition of works on paper, and they included these works because they wanted them and had, had room for them. So uh, I just can't say enough about him and him documenting the African-American experience. And he was a lover of tools. And if you look closely in a lot of the prints, you will see some tools over in the corner of something in some way in the print. The one we have at the gallery is called Carpenters, so I hope that people yeah, come that's, see Well, that. that's what he was into, you know, tools. Yeah, tools are great things. That's what he would always say. And that sense of the way colors go together, always. Yeah, well, he only used just four three or four colors, and what he would do with all the reds, he, he, like when he was doing the Tucson series, all those would be laid out. He'd go do the reds and the yellows and, and all of that. He would do it, work on them all together. Exactly, and that's how he maintained that consistent color that you so know him for, where the green is exactly the same green all the way across the series. Yeah, so he just was a great mind and, again, believed in libraries because he would go and study at the Schomburg Library and that's where he got inspiration to do the Toussaint Overture series because he was so impressed with Toussaint and Haiti and how they obtained freedom. And then when they, Napoleon went against the word and he went back and acquired, trying to acquire Haiti, then I love the print where the uh, citizens took arms, fought to protect their freedom. He's a great storyteller in his work and migration series. I can't say enough about that. So he's just really has done some great, great pieces. Harriet, do you want to say a little bit about your nephew? Yes. My nephew, Charles Lewis O'Banion, graduated from Cosmezacardi in 2006. And unfortunately, he lost his, his life about three years ago. So I thought it would be a great honor for him to have this in his memory. And I'm getting photographs to send. His his mother was deceased when he was an early child, and he was had been married and was divorced, so he uh, it was just devastating 
especially to his dad, who had given up so much of his time and energy. But he was a great, great person, very full of life, and really liked Mesocardia. He, he had majored in psychology, and he, he worked, did a lot of work in group homes where people with different disabilities were put in you know, homes that had a certain number of residents. So he was very good at that and just really hated that his life ended so soon. But well, we're grateful that you would introduce us to him, too, as part of this overall conversation. We really appreciate it and try to educate as many people as we can and appreciate what you all are doing, bringing it there for the students to uh, learn about it. The collection will be up until April the 10th, and you can come see it. Um, please do call f- for hours, but our public hours are 12 to 4. We are having a public reception on March the 19th, Saturday from 2 to 5, where you can come and look at all of the works of art. We will have live music provided by Pat Temple, LaToya Martin, and Wendy Hinton, as well as some light refreshments. So I hope you'll join us for that, and uh, or at some point join us before the show leaves. Dr. Lalane Little, who is director of the Pauli Friedman Art Gallery and adjunct professor at Misericordia University in Dallas, Pennsylvania, just outside Wilkes-Barre, She and I had a chance to speak by phone with Mrs. Harriet Kelly at her home in San Antonio, Texas. We spoke about the Harriet and Harmon Kelly collection of African-American art, Works on Paper, a show that will be at Misericordia until April 10th, until Sunday, April 10th. This collection assembled by Harriet and Harmon Kelly is one of the country's major collections of African-American art, and there are 40 pieces from that collection in the exhibition. Again, the exhibition will run until April 10th, and there will be a free public reception this Saturday, March 19th, from 2 to 5, and if you'd like to make reservations, in fact, they urge you to make reservations, you may send a note to A. Isaac at misericordia.edu, A-I-S-A-A-C, at misericordia.edu. Regular gallery hours, noon to four, Monday through Saturday, or by appointment, and admission is always free. Masks are required indoors on campus, regardless of vaccination status. For more information on the web, misericordia.edu slash art, misericordia.edu slash art and misericordia is spelled m-i-s-e-r-i-c-o-r-d-i-a misericordia.edu slash art and that is the Harriet and Harmon Kelly collection of African-American art works on paper an exhibition at the Pauli Friedman Art Gallery at Misericordia University and that is misericordia.edu slash art. And as we heard, Mrs. Harriet O'Banion Kelly, whose nephew Charles Lewis O'Banion passed away in 2019, was a graduate of Misericordia in 2006, and she has arranged with Lelaine and the university to show these works in his memory. Thank you.